Well, good morning, Sun Valley Church, and welcome to a special edition of The Voice of the Valley. I am your host, Jeremy Pinch, and with me this morning is Pastor John Schubert and Pastor Rick Whitmer. And our special guest is, is joining us all the way from uh, Sun Valley, California. He is the pastor of Grace Community Church, and he's been pastoring there for over 50 years now. He is also the chancellor of the Master's University, which uh, Pastor Rick just graduated from, in which I'm still a student there. And he is also the chancellor of the Master's Seminary. He is a uh, featured teacher at Grace to You, and he has written over a hundred books and commentaries throughout his ministry. He is married to his wife, Patricia, and they have four children who are now adults and married. And between their four children, they have 15 grandchildren. Uh, our pastor, Pastor John Schubert, uh, has had the special privilege of having a unique access to this man uh, throughout his life and ministry, uh, seeing that Pastor John Schubert is his nephew. Of course, we are talking to Dr. John MacArthur. Dr. MacArthur, thank you so much for joining us this morning on The Voice of the Valley. Oh, it's my pleasure, Jeremy. Thank you for inviting me, and uh, hello to Rick and uh, John as well. Hello. Again, we're, uh, we're grateful that you have joined us, and I know that we will be blessed as a church. Uh, and to get us start, uh, started, Dr. MacArthur, uh, I know that you have are fully aware of the effects of this pandemic and, and the life or what it's doing to the life of the church. Uh, preachers are preaching in empty sanctuaries. Everything is now being moved online. Uh, people are not able to be uh, meeting now. Uh, but in, in the midst of all this, is there is there one thing that has been encouraging for you personally during this time? Yeah, of course, I, I live in the in the realm of my own church. And um, the things that we've seen the Lord doing in our church have been tremendously encouraging to me. Um, th this is obviously uh, a new normal for us for this period of time. It's We would have hoped that it would have come and gone in a very brief amount of time, but obviously that hasn't happened. And we're in California, so we have no idea what the people who run this state of California are going to do with regard to churches. So. This is kind of prolonged for us, but it has allowed our church to minister in some pretty amazing ways. Uh, maybe because our church is larger, we, we've been given opportunities and privileges that uh, some of the smaller churches don't have. So I understand that this is really tough for uh, smaller churches not to have the people together, not to hear from their pastor. Many of them don't have the ability to do live stream and things like that. And, and the absenteeism is, is really uh, felt gr much greater because they don't connect the way we're able to connect through the media that we, we have and we are capable of producing. But uh, our people have continued to give. I, I guess that's the first thing to say. They've given more than our budget uh, all through this period of time. So they say we love our church, even though we can't be together. We want to make sure that all the ministries and all the support of the missionaries continues. And that's been encouraging. Uh, all of our staff pastors have been doing Bible studies and, and all kinds of lessons on video. We basically have a video crew. We turned one of our rooms into a studio, and we're producing video about 24-7 for the last month and a half. 
children's video, junior high video, high school, all the fellowship groups. So everybody has been served the word of God and has an opportunity to take advantage of that. One of the remarkable things we've done is uh, to take our Sunday night program Adventure Club and a guy named Ranger Joe and, and turn that into a video series, uh, which has gone all over the world. I did a Q&A last night with children from around the world, Spain and Brazil and Japan. And they were asking me questions, little kids like four and five and six and seven and eight years old. And I was trying to answer their Bible questions with Ranger Joe. So, you know, I, and, and preaching on Sunday to an empty auditorium, but at the same time, We've had something like between 90 and 100 nations join us every Sunday. It's not, a, it's not um, unusual to have 70 or 80,000 different uh, devices connecting up to us all over the place. So I guess in one sense, if you wanted to preach the, the gospel and the word around the world, a pandemic would be probably a good strategy to make that happen. It's kind of worked out that way. Um, and that has been very encouraging. People have been converted. People have called and followed up with emails, and we've been able to do some discipleship. Some of our guys are actually holding one-on-one -on -one Bible studies with people in Italy who have come to the Lord, and uh, it's just uh, it's really been an amazing thing. At the same time, um, the people uh, have a certain sadness because they miss the fellowship. If we were to define, the, to, to define the church, we would say it is a fellowship. Koinonia is critical to us. We Our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son and with each other, as John writes. So so they miss that. They feel they feel the loss of that. But um, I think when we all get back together, it's going to be quite a significant celebration. So uh, we've tried to minister to the to, to our own wider community. Our our people uh, today are actually spreading out to all the fire stations and police stations and hospitals in the area, and dropping off some orchid plants, just to say thank you to all these people who serve. And there's a card in there that uh, identifies our church and our church's desire to serve and help the people in this community. A semi pulled up today with 5,500 orchids in it. Uh, some of these farmers that are, that are doing all these things are throwing these things away because there's no market for them because the stores that normally carry them aren't open. And, and so they, um, they look to us to use this as a way to sort of introduce people to our church and the gospel. So all kinds of things that you wouldn't expect uh, to happen are happening. Uh, there was a big wedding planned and uh, obviously that couldn't happen. So I ended up marrying a couple of, I think four weeks before their normal wedding was supposed to take place. And I just did it at, at my house. First time I've ever done a wedding in my house. They were thrilled. They didn't have to do all the planning. They just came over I said a few things. Uh, we had a great time, and they went away married. So uh, we're we're trying, we're making whatever necessary adjustments we we can make. But now you're going to have a, a new trend starting. Everybody's want to get married at the MacArthur House. Well, yeah, but I've already told them that uh, that that was that was an anomaly. <laughs> so we're we're not going to let that happen again. The, but, we, but that that is an issue. Uh, I think uh, California finally decided to let people get a get a marriage license online. They couldn't even get a marriage license. Uh, they had to chase all over the place to try to get a marriage license to get married. So they're they're making some accommodations. Uh, Friday, 200 pastors met here in Southern California to talk about what they're going to do, basically to reopen the church. And I think the strategy is basically that 
they don't want to put a burden on a single church to open up because that would draw all kinds of media attention. So there's sort of a plan going on now that would basically mean that several hundred churches or more would all open on one day and it would be, would be hard to, uh, would be hard to shut all that down. Uh, that it's it, you have to be very careful what day you pick and how you design that opening to take place. But that was being discussed on Friday by uh, on a Zoom call with at least 200 pastors and some politicians from Sacramento. And um, so there's there's a move around here to get the church back together. And of course, by now everybody knows there's a second narrative to this entire pandemic. And that second narrative is that this thing was overblown. It isn't anything like they told us it was going to be. It's essentially the same as the flu would be. That's the new narrative. The CDC says the deaths are actually half. Medical doctors that I know say that they're probably half again of the half. So there's another narrative out there that makes this far less threatening than it is. And so churches begin to feel like this thing is getting political. And uh, they're asking the question, okay, we're going, to, we're going to submit to the government, you know, Romans 13, 1 Peter 3, 1 Thessalonians 4. We're going to lead quiet and peaceable lives. We're going to be good citizens and all that. Until this thing becomes evidently an unnecessary kind of form of persecution of the church, which is read that way. And uh, if you can open uh, the, the marijuana stores and the bars and lots of other things, why are they holding that on the church? So that's kind of where the pastors throughout California are at this point. Uh, they're talking with some of the politicians. So we'll see what, what happens. But for the time, we've, we've accepted the responsibility to be good citizens and done what essentially they told us to do. So, uh, Dr. MacArthur, as we look at, you know, this, this pandemic that has, has been taking place, uh, there's been things going around the internet saying that, you know, this is, is, this is God's judgment on, on America, on the nations. Um, is, is this God's judgment on the nations or why or why not? Well, no, this is not an, this is not some kind of apocalyptic judgment. There's no vaccine for an apocalyptic judgment and nobody survives apocalyptic judgment with it, with it antibodies. This is life. This is just life in a fallen planet. This is the usual bugs. We've had coronaviruses around for decades. For at least the last 15 years, there have been coronaviruses. This is just a form of mutation of that virus. And when this thing is said and done, from, from all the people that I know in the medical world that I've talked to about this, th this is no different than seasonal flu in its effect. Uh, the, the reaction was basically created by a panic that was generated by some people at the front end of this thing. And there are all kinds of theories about why that happened. Uh, there, some of them uh, sound reasonable and some of them sound conspiratorial to a, an almost diabolical level. But whatever that is, th this is, this is turning out to be essentially like the flu. And uh, people who are dying are essentially people who have comorbidity. They have uh, basically other issues, health issues. You hear everybody talking about respirators. I don't know if you responded to that, but uh, the bottom line with a respirator is if you're on a respirator, you're, you're, you're next to dead. When they put you on a respirator, you don't get better. 
So those are people who have severe, severe issues. And, uh, but the latest, uh, the latest numbers uh, that I've heard are that this is going to basically be like the seasonal flu. And it was a massive, massive overreaction, basically launched out of England by this Imperial College and whoever the guy was that created the model that said two to four million Americans were going to die. But having said that, uh, that doesn't mean that it's out of the hands of God. So while I don't see this as an apocalyptic judgment, look, death is the judgment on every human being. It's appointed unto man once to die and after this, the judgment. So however many people who die during this event, that's going to be the judgment. They're going to face God. So it's death is everyone's judgment. But as far as this being something that's described in the book of Revelation, some kind of apocalyptic uh, slaughter uh, that is basically designed there to wipe out, say, a fourth of the earth or a third of the earth, as it says in Revelation, this is not that. This is the flu. And in fact, there are, there are many doctors who say the worst thing you can do for this kind of thing is go indoors. You need to go outside, be exposed to it, because that's what activates your immune system. So there's so much confusion about this. Uh, if you're talking about divine judgment, you would be talking about something that was inescapable, the, something that was, was terminal on a massive degree. So, uh, And those things that that are described in the book of Revelation are post-rapture as far as scripture is concerned. So believers are going to be taken out and then the, the judgment begins to come on the earth. But what I do see that has prophetic implications is the globalization of everything. You, you know, reading the Bible about the Antichrist ruling the entire world, the mark of the beast, that he controls commerce and he controls the whole world. More than ever in human history, that is possible. Now, you know, with the, they're going to want to create tracking devices of all of us so that they know everywhere we go, everyone we've ever contacted. Uh, so this is the idea of tracing. So we find out who's passing diseases around. You, you talk about a terrifying reality. That is it. Uh, because the, they literally take over control of your life. And, and I see, I see the trends in globalism. Basically, it's amazing to me how in American history, for example, you, you have literally, well, I, it was at least 150,000 men who gave their lives in World War II. 60 million people died, but 150,000 Americans gave their lives in World War II, more in Korea, more in, in uh, Vietnam, more obviously in World War I. And people through the centuries or generations in America have given their lives for freedom. How easily does this generation give up its freedom if the government were protected from the flu? So th this is a completely different mentality. This is a kind of mentality where you have generations of people who want safe spaces on campus, who don't want to hear somebody say something they disagree with. This is a very weak and cowardly generation if the government will take care of them, if the government will protect them, if the government will give them what they need and what they want, they'll give up all their freedoms immediately. What, look how fast they've given up free speech. And now there are things on the internet that appear that probably are, are, are representative of the truth and Google shuts them down and blocks them because there can't be an alternative narrative. 
So this means, if, if, you, if you think about it this way, you don't need an army to conquer a nation. All you need is fear. And if you can make people afraid of the flu, you can literally get them to give up all their freedoms and act like robots. So if you ever wondered how the Antichrist and his powers could take control of everything, you're seeing an illustration of that. So I see that as a kind of a prophetic preview of what could happen and will happen in the future. Well, John, this, this is all uh, really important uh, for Christians to think about, obviously. Um, and it seems like it's very related to our political structures right now in the United States. And uh, I'd like to ask you if you wouldn't mind commenting on Christians and politics, particularly um, in this um, election year, and and how are we to think as um, uh, Bible-believing, uh, gospel-centered Christians regarding the options we have facing us in November? Um, of course, without endorsing anybody, how do you how do you how would you encourage how, how do you encourage your church to think biblically about this important privilege we have of voting? Well, yeah, I, I think uh, an Old Testament text comes to mind. Uh, he that rules over men must be just, walking in the fear of God. So that, that is what the Old Testament says. That's not about a priest. That's not about a prophet. That's not about a pastor or anything like that. That is a ruler. Uh, the, a ruler must be just, walking in the fear of God. Um, that is the basic foundation for just society, for fair fairness. You have to have a ruler who is just, and that means he's got to be honest. Um, he's got to be honest and not politically corrupted. The worst thing you see in the Old Testament is corrupt judges that can be bought or corrupt prophets that can be bought for handfuls of bread, people who can be bribed, people who basically overturn justice for their own personal gain. So what you're looking for is people who have a measure of justice, and that means they, they conduct their lives in a way that is right as opposed to wrong and fair. Um, that, that's a good place to start. Now, I'm not talking about a Christian person. I'm talking about someone who has integrity, who is just and does what is right. And what is right is defined in Romans 13. He, he punishes evildoers and he protects those who do good. That's, that's how a just ruler rules. So that's what you're looking for. It would be nice if he were a Christian, uh, but, but that's, that's not always an option. Um, I think about this way. I, when I was talking to Ben Shapiro and I did that interview with him, I said, you know, if I'm going to have somebody do brain surgery on me, I, that would be nice if he was a Christian, but um, I'm not really looking for a Christian when it comes to brain surgery. I'm looking for a guy who knows what he's doing in brain surgery. That's a different function. That's not running the church. That's not a kingdom of God issue. It's not a spiritual issue. It's a competency issue. Uh, leadership at the presidential level or leadership at any elected officials level is a matter, first of all, of justice and secondly, of competence. Um, is, he a, is he an adequate leader? Can he, can he withstand what's going on? 
The other thing I would say about it is that the parties now are not divided over sociology like they once were. You used to be that Republicans were sort of the, the, the owners and Democrats were the workers and uh, they were basically trying to balance off ownership and, and labor. That's, that's long gone. The, the Republican Party tends to be an anti-abortion um, and it tends to be anti-homosexuality, anti-transgender. Um, uh, the Democratic Party has made all of those things a part of its platform. Its platform is abortion. Its platform is homosexual rights. Its platform is transgender rights, which makes it basically an immoral platform. Uh, no Christian can vote for an immoral platform or an advocate of an immoral platform, because if there's anything that you want in society, it is justice. It is, it is righteousness. You want the person, as I said, who's competent, but who understands right and wrong and what is just. Why is that important? That, that is important. And you all, all of us know it now because we're terrified of what our children in public schools are hearing. Uh, we, we've had so much corruption in leadership that has filtered down through politics um, and through the universities into the, into the people who teach and therefore into all the school system that it's in many cases terrifying to think about what your children and think of the next generation of little kids are gonna be hearing when they go to school when it comes to morality. So no Christian can vote a party line that essentially is a platform of immorality because you're literally aiding and abetting the destruction of the, the coming subsequent generation. So I think that's where you have to look. Um, and that, that's a pretty clear cut situation as far as, as I can see. Um, the, the, the parties are so, um, tightly aligned that it would be hard to to be able to vote for a democrat or to find a democrat who would go against the party line and the reason they can't go against the party line is because they get cut off from the funds and the resources that get them elected we we had an illustration here there was a congresswoman named katie hill she was right from our area here she was discredited for lesbianism and nude photos and they threw her out of Congress a few months ago. Um, the Democratic Party had invested 30 million dollars in getting her elected and to show you uh, how much money that is for a local election there were about 45,000 people that voted. So they spent 30 million dollars to get 45,000 people to vote for her uh, to put her in Congress um, and she was basically that that you have to understand these people who get in those positions literally are put there by the money of the party. So it's hard to find anybody who's in that party who hasn't basically become dependent on the funding of the party. And that means you follow the party line. So the idea that you could find somebody in that party who ran against the grain would be very, very hard to find. So we're forced to make a decision about the, the election based on these moral issues and then based on competency. And that's another issue. 
um, whether you vote for a competent man or a guy with dementia doesn't seem to me like a tough decision. What are you saying? <laughs> what, what I appreciate about what you're saying is that um, you're, you're not saying this is, this is not about voting a party. This is about extending the Lordship of Christ in our lives into our civic life. Um, which really, I think, you know, is the call of the Christian to take you know, every area and submit to the Lordship of Christ, to take every thought captive to obey Christ. And that's what really seems like is driving your, your counsel on our view of political engagement. Because um, a lot of times people will accuse the church of just, you know, uh, you're just basically the Republican Party's establishment. Well, no, that's not the case. We are the Lord's church. Um, the party has nothing to do with it. And it's not about any party. It's about how is Jesus exalted by, by our engagement here. And, uh, and I think that that leads into another question, uh, one that I'd have, which is that as you're looking around at believers in the church today, um, in our country specifically, what are some of the most pressing concerns that you have for individual Christians as you're, as you're looking at the, the scene right now. Yeah. And let me say an amen to what you said. It, all, it goes all the way back to Augustine's city of man and city of God. The, the distinction between the two parties now is crystal clear. It's a, it's, it's a kingdom issue. It's, um, it's almost Satan and God. Uh, although we don't want to make Christians out of all the Republicans or non-Christians out of all the Democrats, the, the it's, it's more clear cut. Uh, a moral choice, um, a kingdom choice. It's the city of man versus the city of God. So you're absolutely right. You know, like always, uh, I've, I've said that the church always has the same problem. And that problem is it has a deficient immune system. And so it can't defend itself against a thousand heresies. Um, uh, your immune system is designed to basically fight against all kinds of diseases. And that from a, from a spiritual standpoint or a doctrinal standpoint or a church perspective is discernment. And what the church lacks is discernment. If you, if you look at the chaos in the church, um, you see all these pe people running after the prosperity gospel, all these people running after social justice or intersectionality or running after you know, whatever it is, the charismatic movement or, or politics or whatever it is. And all of these are distractions that are basically luring people who lack discernment. So that, that's to me the first thing. And that is, a, that is essentially the legacy of inadequate theology inadequate preaching and teaching. Preaching has become largely a kind of narcissistic self-expression, certainly in megachurches, and they're the ones that end up on media, so they get the ubiquitous presence everywhere. It's a kind of a look at me. It's, it's a kind of a monologue. It, the, the, the most common word in all that preaching is the word I. And so there's very little real sound teaching of the Word of God. There's very little bringing people under the clear matrix of Scripture so that they can have discernment. That's the first thing. Uh, a pastor uh, 
today sees himself as some kind of a crowd builder and some kind of a motivator for personal success rather than a protector, rather than somebody who feeds people the word so they grow into maturity and they can protect themselves. Um, I've always thought of myself as having the responsibility to guard the flock of God, to guard the truth and guard the flock. So discernment is the first, the first missing ingredient. But there's also the fact that where you even have discernment, there is very often a lack of courage. Uh, people who know what is right are not willing to take a stand for it. And so you get a lot of vacillating and compromising because there's a price to pay for that. There's a price to pay for standing firm. Uh, you, you get vilified for that. You get accused of being narrow-minded, uh, overly doctrinal, unloving, unkind. Um, I know that because those are words that are thrown at me all the time. Um, if, you, if you ask the people at Grace Church, you would never hear anything like that because they know that the word of God produces conviction and conviction, they want that conviction and they stand firm on that conviction, but it's not unloving to have those convictions. It's the right thing. And you just, if you have convictions and you speak those convictions into this culture, you're talking in a politically incorrect way because everybody has their own truth and all of that. So what, what is missing in my mind in the church, first of all, is the knowledge of the word of God that produces convictions and then the courage to hold those convictions against the, the assault um, uh, on us. And thank you. Cause that, I mean, that makes a lot of sense in what you're saying as you were saying it, um, it rings fresh for me because in Dr. Morley's practical theology class, we just finished reading your, your book, uh, the master's plan for the church. And I think you really fleshed out what you just said in a, a really clear and deep way in that book. And so thank you very much. Well, you're welcome. My pleasure. Uh, another question, John, that we would like to have you answer for our people is uh, something you've written about recently and the idea of faithfulness um, and particularly faithfulness um, in ministry, faithfulness in uh, families as husbands and fathers. Um, you know, you've, as Jeremy introduced you, you've been at Grace for over 50 years, um, which is uh, a wonderful example of faithfulness. Uh, I, I personally know you and your family, and I've seen the faithfulness and what that has produced in your children and grandchildren. And so I think you're, you're speaking from a position that is uh, uh, valuable to hear from. So what would you say to us three as ministers and any other ministers who may be listening. And then beyond that to us as a church, Sun Valley church here in Yakima, the importance of faithfulness, and then, and then maybe taking it down a little to the layman in terms of their marriages and, and parenthood. Yeah. Well, that's a big question, John, but I, I would say we all know what Paul says it is, is required of stewards that a man be found faithful. Uh, and what that assumes is that you have loyalty to the truth and loyalty to the truth written and incarnate. You're loyal to the Lord who is the source of the truth and you're, you're loyal to the truth that he has proclaimed in his word. So when we're talking about faithful, we're talking about fidelity to truth. Um, the truth that applies to the church, the truth that applies to my personal sanctification, the truth that applies to my marriage, the truth that applies to my parenting. 
to say someone is faithful is to say that that person is loyal to the truth of Scripture as it relates to everything. Faithful to the principles of friendship, faithful to the principles of marriage, faithful to the principles of child raising, faithful to the, to the family of God in the church, faithful to stimulate one another to love and good works. To, to say someone is faithful is basically to say that the person lives out a biblical life. Now, I, I want to, and that should be, I mean, that's foundational for all of us, but you need to know what the Bible says in order to be faithful to it. So where that's not taught, it's hard to be faithful if you don't know what the Bible really expects of you. So you, you, your church, your people are blessed to know that they, because you feed them the word of God. They know what faithfulness means. It means to adhere to those things which are true as revealed by God. And that's the pathway of blessing. But I want to talk about that for just a minute in terms of, um, of longevity. Okay. Um, I, I, I watch pastors, obviously. I'm, I can't avoid that. That's the world I live in. And I watch pastors who appear to be faithful to a certain doctrines. And then all of a sudden something happens in the culture and all the, something changes with them. All of a sudden it's like they, they got off the train and got on another train going another direction. And, uh, the bottom line with that is this, you, you won't live long enough to create a new constituency. And what I mean by that is you, you can't be 10 years preaching one thing and then all of a sudden decide that you're going another direction. You will not live long enough to rebuild your life. So the way you endure over half a century is by just holding on to the truth. And so you can't be knocked over by the winds of change in the culture, even the evangelical culture. I, I've, I've had pastors, I've talked to pastors and I've said, why in the world did you decide to believe that, go there, affirm that, because you basically just said to all the people who trusted you, uh, I, I can't be trusted. You, you're not going to live long enough to reinvent yourself, start all over again, and build a constituency who are going to follow you. You get one shot at life. And you, you just, the good thing about, I'm thinking about the guys that went to the masters, the guys that got a good beginning, that's going to stand you in the right place for life if you're faithful. You're not trying to figure things out. I was talking to somebody recently, and I said, they, they're, they live in a town where there's a seminary. And I said, what's the, characterize a graduate of that seminary. And uh, this man said to me, well, they don't know what they believe and they can't preach. <laughs> oh, well, that's great. Uh, that's like somebody graduating from med, med school and being lethal. But if you, if you start out in ministry and you don't know what you believe and you can't preach, you're going to spend the first 10 years of your life trying to figure out what you believe and how to preach. The, the chaos there is, is, is very hard to escape. The, the benefit of the right training is you're not asking, what do I believe? You're not asking, how should I preach? So once you get in that pathway of being faithful to that truth, 
the longer you sustain that, the more exponential your influence becomes. Because you, you, you haven't shifted, you haven't had to reinvent yourself and sort of all the people that you once influenced are calling into question what you said and you think you're going to create a new persona, it's not going to happen. What happens is you, your influence begins to diminish. May I, may, so, I, may, I ask, may I ask another question here, Uncle John? Sure. Uh, I understand you're saying that my if I, if I were to switch gears here and head a different direction doctrinally, my trustworthiness would be in question. And that's what you're saying. But secondly, can you say for a moment, tell us, what does my shift do for our people's um, trust in the scriptures? Well, it, it, I mean, all the bolts come loose. You've been trying to bolt them down to the truth. And, and when a pastor makes a shift like that, everything comes loose. They, they don't know what to believe. You, you loosen them all up. Um, it, it has a dire effect on them. And listen, it isn't just a moral failure that has a devastating effect on a church. It is also some kind of doctrinal mega shift, so, some kind of, hey, we're changing, we're going this direction instead of this direction. This is chaotic for people. And there are, there are young guys who do that just because they, they're unsettled and they're whimsical and, and they're always chasing some new vision and some new dream and they drive their people crazy. Uh, but what I'm not so much talking about that as a guy who decides he's been teaching the word of God, teaching the gospel, preaching sound doctrine, and all of a sudden he decides decides he's going to jump on some political bandwagon, he's going to jump on some social movement bandwagon, and uh, it, it turns a, a different direction, and the people, the people basically lose confidence in him, and then they lose confidence in what he told them. Uh, that's that's sad, and I, I think we would all understand this. Even churches that have different pastors every four or five years struggle to get a cohesive understanding of the truth because there's nobody there long enough to to build on what's been said. the 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 benefit of being somewhere a long time like you have is you know what they know and you're building on it. And they know what they know, and you're building on it. You walk out, and the next guy comes in. He thinks he's got to go back to square one, and your people are looking at their clock at 11.15, wondering when they're going to get out of there because they already know all that. Fifty years, you know, obviously there's no question in the, in the issue, right? I mean, there's no question about where you guys as a church stand doctrinally. And, no. and so... And I would, I would say this, John, the, the end of sound doctrine is not hard-heartedness. The end of sound doctrine is love, love from a pure heart. The goal of our preaching is love from a pure heart. That's the goal of all our preaching. And I think that's one of the things you guys see when you come to a shepherd's conference. You know, 50 years of sound doctrine doesn't make hard people. It makes loving people because that's the work of the Spirit and the Word in their lives. If you don't have convictions and sound doctrine guiding and guarding your life and, and giving you strength and, you know, being basically the foundation for all the spiritual graces, you are going to be a hard, obstinate, somewhat proud person. It's the, 
It's the relentless teaching of the word of God that breaks our pride, humbles us and softens us up. And so the goal of our preaching, and that's, that's what the new Testament says. The goal of our preaching is love from a pure heart. And that's because there's a consistency and a trust. I'll say one other thing too. And this is really, really important. I'm, I'm, this is kind of looking at the end of my life. You know, this is the view from the hearse, right? I'm looking out the back as I go to the graveyard. And I'm telling you, if I've learned anything as a pastor, it's what Jesus said in the upper room when he said, I'm leaving you. And there was panic. There was panic among the disciples that he was going to leave. Where are you going to go? And We'll never be able to find you. And We can't live without you. And, and he said to them, but I'm going to send a parakletos. And that's the word for encourager. I'm going to send an encourager a comforter. He didn't say, I'm going to send a policeman. He didn't say, I'm going to send a disciplinarian. He didn't say, I'm going to send a president. He said, I'm going to send an encourager. And I think spiritual leadership is the combination of feeding people the word of God and being the number one encourager in their lives. It is amazing how much longevity you can you can get out of a ministry if people see you as their comforter that you're not ever attacking them there you're the one they want to lean on you're the one they want to hear from because they see you as their comforter their encourager and i think leadership that lasts is leadership in which you encourage people it's not about authority it's never about authority not about control that's top down. It's about encouragement. That's bottom up. It's coming alongside and nurturing them and loving them and being patient with them. And that's what gives you longevity. I think, I think one of the, my favorite quotes from you is hard preaching makes soft hearts. Soft preaching makes hard hearts. True. It's true. Yeah. If and they I, see you as their encourager, they lean on that. Yeah. They lean on that. Yeah. And I, in kind of observing your ministry for the past 10 years, because um, where I, in the training I had before I came to Sun Valley and before I went to master's, I, I really hadn't had that much exposure um, to the kind of doctrines coming out of Grace Church and that's taught at the, at the seminary and the, and the college. Um, and what's impressed me has been the, the exegetical precision of the doctrine, which is fused with vibrant spiritual love for the Lord and a passion for his glory. And I, and I can tell you just by personal testimony in, we have, we have four children who are pretty young. Um, and in family worship, we're going through Job right now. And just some of the questions that come up from them in relation to what's going on with Job or why, why is, are his friends saying that in other books we've gone through in family worship, being able to have precise doctrinal answers from the text and then to use that as a basis of comforting them and encouraging them. I mean, it really does have an impact that children can cling to even. And so, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. No, you know, that, that is such a truth statement. Um, children ask tremendous questions. Um, this Sunday night, we do a live stream thing uh, every Sunday night. And this Sunday night, I'm answering children's questions with Ranger Joe. 
And these, these little voices, we recorded it yesterday. These are actual kids from Japan, Brazil, Spain, all over the planet. And they ask these compelling questions uh, that, from their little hearts. So there's an, an, an hour this Sunday night at six on live stream from Grace Church in which I'm answering questions from all from little kids. And I've said this before, but they, they have the best questions. You know, they, they have questions that are simple, straightforward, and they need to be answered, like, like who made God? Because their little minds, they can't process the idea that somebody always was. So it's just, it's a delight to do that. But, uh, but look, starting with kids, all the way on up, people want answers. We, we did a, I told uh, our people on one of the live streams on a Sunday morning that we were going to have a Q&A that night. And anybody could send in questions. We had a thousand questions by the time that service began at six o'clock that same day from everywhere. And what does that tell you? People want answers. They want spiritual answers to the issues of life. And, and the word of God does provide those answers. And once they settle into those answers, they can pass them on. And as you said, you can, you can raise your children with those, those answers. And that, that is so securing for those little guys to, to there's comfort in the fact that they know, you know what they need to know. Well, Dr. MacArthur, as we, uh, as we finish up this, this interview with you, uh, I want to ask one final question. I know that John, Rick, and myself have, have benefited from uh, the books that you've read. Uh, but if you were to, if, if, if someone was going to read one of your books, uh, what, what book would you recommend and why that book? Oh, man, that's like asking me who my favorite grandchild is. <laughs> and now I have a great grandchild. Um, uh, uh, um, uh, you know, I, I think probably the most important book I've written is the gospel according to Jesus, because it was so clarifying uh, for the evangelical movement at the time that it was written uh, over 20 years ago now, but it's still the heart and soul of my ministry, the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Uh, the gospel according to Jesus is a critical book. Uh, it came out recently in a new form called Only Jesus, which sums up everything that's in that book without the polemics, without the, the, the arguments and the debates that I was having with the other authors. So uh, I, I would say the gospel according to Jesus is, is a critical one or the newest form of it, which, which is a little book called Only Jesus, which speaks to the issue of the Lordship of Christ. Um, and then it's, it's hard for me to select. And I'm only saying that because of the impact that that book has con continues to have in clarifying the gospel for people. Well, thank you for that recommendation. And uh, thank you for uh, taking the time out of, out of your schedule to, to minister to us three and to the church here at Sun Valley. So thank you for joining us. No, it's my joy, and may the Lord continue to do exceeding abundantly above all you can ask or think. It's been wonderful to be with you. Thank you, John. Thank you so much. Well, church, we love you. Uh, we do look forward to being with you soon enough, whenever that will be, uh, and we hope that this has been a blessing to you. Look forward to being with you next week on The Voice of the Valley. 
Have a great day.